0: Podcast series on the Beethoven string quartets brought to you by the Mochum Symphony. I'm your host Emlyn Stamm and I'll be taking you through Beethoven's string quartets in this five-episode series focusing on what's special about each and every one of them. I'll be taking the time to examine the cultural history of the string quartet, the importance of Beethoven today, as well as the evolving performance practice of his string quartets from the dawn of recording to today. And as usual I'm joined by violinist, conductor, pianist, and director of the Mochum Symphony Johan Berkheimer to discuss all that and more. Hi, Johan. Hi, Emlen. Today I wanted to spend a little time focusing on the recorded legacy of Beethoven's string quartets, as well as the history of recording, because we know in recent years that early recordings from the beginning of the 20th century and even the end of the 19th century have become an increasingly important source for those of us who want to understand the way music was played in the past. Recordings tell us that musical performance style changes over time, Can you tell us anything about your opinion or your ideas about this phenomenon?
1: Zeitgeist in English, is it?
0: Zeitgeist, of course, the German word that we often borrow into English to describe the spirit of the age. Yes,
1: it's uh, influencing the way we play, the way we build houses, the, the way
0: we paint or make poetry or fashion or design cars. And cars, of course, the design of cars has changed tremendously, not only for technological reasons, but also for aesthetic reasons, yeah. right?
1: But the funny thing is that um, the Volkswagen Kaver, the Beetle. the Beetle, is back as the Mini is back, but in more than modern form. So people grab back to qualities of the past. That's very interesting. That's exactly what actually
0: we do with Malcolm Symphony. What? changed so much about music making. From well, really-
1: the whole general feeling after the Second World War was so different. I mean, there was there had been such a dramatic, horrible period of time. From 1945 on, it was the time of the rebuilding, the rebuild, with the accents on um, welfare and economy. People had enough of drama and tears, and there was a sober atmosphere of business-like coldness. And also, people were traumatized by a German dictator that ruined the world. I mean, Willem Mengelberg, the greatest conductor of all times maybe, was actually also sort of a German dictator with a big influence on cultural life and a very inspiring uh, figure with great power. And people had enough of that. So they mixed it up a little bit and they were longing for more objectivity.
0: So you get in Amsterdam, for example, the Belmer starts to be built after the Second World War, right? This idea of big gray flats yes. that are like stories high. They're all square. They're all evenly divided. There's equal space between all of them. There's roads going through. Everything is lined in squares and in concrete. What's the musical equivalent of that?
1: Yes, well, once I was rehearsing in an orchestra and I heard myself say to the first violins, ladies and gentlemen, you play the melody like... a." modern suburb of a city but I would like you to play it like the old city center (laughs) Uh, and I think music making is like today is like modern suburbs everything sounds the same window after window after door after door in the same rhythm
0: but it should be neat and tidy right and we should see that everything is structured and predictable right yes exactly
1: especially with Beethoven I mean Beethoven needs so much flexibility and so much extraordinary steps to take to express all kinds of feelings and emotions and drama and doubts and anger and all the human emotions are enlarged and you should take really risk risky steps to translate that into music
0: so after the second world war also you had the rise of what's called the historically informed performance movement or they used to call themselves yes. the authentic performance practice on original instruments and a whole movement dedicated to changing the way we played music to be more in line with the past, especially with 18th century music and a real focus on composers like Bach and Handel and so on. But of course they based most of their work on written texts and paintings and preserved instruments from the past. But with recordings, what we have is the actual sound of musicians playing from over a hundred years ago, musicians who are rooted in the 19th century, like Joseph Joachim. performance, notwithstanding, of course, the sometimes significant technological distortions that might be caused by surface noise or other things. Um, What is the major difference then for us looking at recordings as compared to, say, reading a text about maybe how music was played in Bach's time and using that to inform our performances?
1: I think the musicians and the musicologists from the early music movement, they interpreted some rules they found from old books from, written by musicologists in a way that the warmth and the emotions were cut out.
0: Well, actually, what I would suggest is that, is that the beginning of the early music movement, I mean, especially from the sort of the 60s until the... 80s or 90s or whatever. They end up interpreting these historical texts very much in a way that has their performances sounding modern, right? Like these sleek high-rise buildings and these suburbs. So they take this information, but they turn it and use it in a way that makes their performances sound clean and organized and business-like maybe.
1: Yeah, I had a funny example of that. Someone asked me to make a transcription and needed was... The tune of the Eurovision Song Festival, and that's Handel, right? I think it's it's a French composer. It's okay. not Handel.
0: It's also not Lully. Oh, I was thinking of Champions League. Mm. Champions League. Yeah, oh it's no Canada. no.
1: Yeah. That's fake Handel. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's modern composer. Okay. But so so the when I I, I was born in '51, so when the song festival started. They had a nice tune like an um, orchestra with trumpets but Of ding dum dum today they use a baroque orchestra Interesting So you hear pong pom pom so there's no glory in it no no emotion in it it's just like so the guy who wanted me to do something with it said yeah I've listened you know I've listened to two versions one orchestra version and one computer version very good <laughs> yeah. it's like, no 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 it's not, it's not a computer it's a baroque orchestra
0: <laughs> okay so that's really working at cross purposes with yourself so you want to go back to the performance style of the 18th century but you end up sounding like microsoft word absolutely <laughs> so that's a mis-
1: big misunderstanding
0: right but and when we go back to actual recordings right of performers what we hear are wild and crazy performances that don't sound anything like suburbia, they sound indeed like the old city centre with byways and alleyways and curved streets and unusual interceptions. Absolutely. Beethoven, I mean we're performing Beethoven as a cycle, we talked about how Beethoven was performed as a cycle, all the quartets in the 19th century. Beethoven was only recorded twice as a cycle before World War II. Of course it was tremendously expensive because you could only fit four minutes or four and a half minutes on the side of a 78 rpm record, right? Mm -hmm. So they had to make tons and tons of records and it would be really expensive for someone to buy all of them at that time. So the only quartets to actually record the full cycle in the first half of the 20th century, where the Budapest String Quartet and the Bush Quartet, both groups that actually, in a way, are kind of more modern and professional and polished than their predecessors. They're yes. already trending in this direction of cleaning up their playing and yeah. having streets and having structures, even if they don't sound at all like that compared to the quartets that came after. They're significantly more free than mm-hmm. today's quartets. But what do you think about the performances of the Budapest and the Busch String Quartets?
1: Well, I more or less grew up with the Busch Quartet. When I was a student, I listened a lot to them and nobody knew them. I found a record, I didn't know them, but no one listened to old, old recordings in my childhood.
0: They were listening to like the Juilliard String Quartet yes. maybe? Yes. or. Which now is old-fashioned already. Yeah, but that was like what is it, the Ford Model T or something, right? Yes, yes. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, not the Model T. It's something later. What, <laughs> what did you have for cars back there in the in the early sixties? I don't know. Yeah, the <laughs> <laughs> who knows? We're not car people. No. But anyway, the Busch quartet. You, you yeah,
1: the Busch quartet is. Adolf Busch was a great soloist and one of the most brilliant violins of his time and a teacher of Yuri Menuhin, very important figure with a great love of of chamber music and he played with his brother, I think, right? They were extraordinary. They were very decent and serious and well-prepared and incredible depth.
0: I suppose one of the things about them is that they also, both the Budapest and the Busch Quartets played with the same personnel regularly, right? So you had Joseph Joachim, like a generation or so before, he had like a group that he played with when he went to London and he had his group in Berlin and they would be different, right? Or sometimes maybe one violin player couldn't come to the concert so there would be another one, right? Yes. But the Busch Quartet was four members who... Played and toured and recorded together for, for decades.
1: Yes. The only difference was that Bush himself was, Adolf Bush was still active as a performer, as a soloist, and other chamber music forms. Um, members of the Amadeus Quartet or the
0: Smetana Quartet. I mean, they were really steady quartets. They only played quartets. They only played quartets. So it's like a kind of a, it's kind of an evolution actually from this kind of looser style where people were kind of interchangeable and they did all kinds of things to like a set quartet with people doing other things as well, but playing quartets on the side to like the quartet as only the quartet and nothing else.
1: Yes. And that's also a danger because I've heard famous modern quartets sometimes on the radio, and even I had intended the concert of a famous French quartet, they sound the same. I mean, the two violins that play absolutely like one person and the viola, the cello is, is just like just one sort of sound and one sort of like four incredibly well-trained soldiers of a commando
0: group. There's like four cogs in a machine or something. Yes. Complete unanimity.
1: So, um, you know, I, I like soccer. And I know that best teams have the best, you know, they have a midfield, they have the defense and they have the attack. But if you have 11 Lionel Messi's in your team, you will lose. So if you have four people that are playing exactly, exactly the same, it's it's sort of boring because you even cannot also... You almost can't the, also who's playing, playing who,
0: right? Who's no. playing what? Let's go to the other end of the spectrum. We have, of course, the very first group that ever made a string quartet recording, the Harsh Tonkunst Quartet, which oh, sounds yeah. very local, very slapdash, very wild. We, of course, copied some of their recordings. And then, of course, there's these early quartets that recorded Beethoven, older quartets, like we talked about the Klingler Quartet in Opus 197. They're the very first quartet to record a movement of Beethoven. They recorded the Danza alla Tedesca from Opus 130 and also a movement of Opus 18.5 in 1911. about how their kind of incredible approach to freedom and the fact that all of them had been closely associated with Joseph Joachim and Karl Klingler played in Joachim's quartet that kind of means something in terms of the 19th century traditions they represent. And then in France, you had Lucien Capet with a Capet string quartet. That's beautiful. What can you say about their way of playing Beethoven?
1: They have their color local, they have the French soul in their sound.
0: And what's the French soul? The
1: the French soul soul in their sound is like, well, you just imagine Charles as Navour. (laughs) <laughs> or, uh, it's like a
0: fast vibrato right so yes, that the,
1: music, yeah the vibrato that goes on it doesn't stop and it's charming it's, it gives a huge charm and like Zino Francescati obviously an Italian name but the very French southern southern French uh, landscape I, I see with a lot of sun and the Mediterranean
0: and they love to throw the bow at the string also right Yes. like the spiccato is very much in the upper half of the bow like the beginning of Opus 185 is very
1: Yeah yeah so they have this, this uh, French charm and they have the French are, are wonderful Beethoven players because they, they use time, they use the roboton. They are very inventive. I studied conducting with uh, Jean Fournet, the great French uh, maestro, and he was very famous for his Debussy, for his Ravel, for the French repertoire, but he was incredibly strong with Beethoven. Although they had the French-German war, they had strong connection with their music. Mm-hmm.
0: Who was the concertmaster of the Vienna Philharmonic? A very, what was known as a very dour and serious guy. He had his Rosé quartet in Vienna. They recorded two of Beethoven's string quartets, at least, opus 18.4 and opus 131. Yes. Rosé's quartet. It's breathtaking. And also very free. Yes. Everyone is doing their own thing in the fugue.
1: Absolutely. But, you know, what the most striking things of all these recordings are is the modesty of those people. I don't know. There is such a huge modesty. I don't know what it is that it's not narcissistic, you know. It's just in, they, they, they serve the music. They
0: But they serve the music at the same time that they're really taking huge liberties with the score, like with not being precisely... Yes, that it's a kind of respect to not respect the score yes
1: because they search they they search for for the expression but I said before you need to funny steps to take to translate this crazy music
0: Of course, there's two other quartets that I would be remiss if I didn't name them here. You have the Flonzali Quartet, which were players trained in France and in Brussels, who had a sponsor in the United States, who also made some early Beethoven recordings. Very sort of precise intonation as well, a vibrant sound. That was the name of the first violinist,
1: right? Flonzali. Yeah, he was a teacher of David Nadian.
0: Yeah. there was a London string quartet. Oh, yes,
1: it's incredible.
0: Albert Sammons. So- they were Thomas, yes. the first in England. They were very early, 1912. They started recording movements of, of Beethoven's quartets. so early uh, in the game they would you know cu- have to cut out sections of movements or whatever to make them fit on the discs but beautifuls playing of Salmons uses very different types of slides all the time
2: yes
1: Could you say that all the quartets you just mentioned have something in common, what do they have in common?
0: If I would say they have something in common, it would be they have a freedom in time in common. So their approach to rhythm and tempo is free compared with the modern approach. They they push and pull also at the same time, they're open to independence, to not playing together, precisely together, so that the voices can go their own directions. But there's different degrees, because the Klingler Quartet goes very far in this, for example, yeah. whereas the Flonzali Quartet plays much more together. Yeah. But there's still that flexibility, which is, I would say, starts to become really lacking in the modern quartets. When you get to the Juilliard Quartet and the Amadeus and so on, they really play precisely together in a way that these quartets don't Okay, so let's turn now to the program for session two, which comes from the Monday May 5th concert in 1845 in London. Opus 18 Opus 59-1 and Opus 131. So Opus 18 that's an interesting quartet. It's actually the first quartet that Beethoven wrote from the Opus 18 series. And that quartet is arguably maybe the closest he comes to kind of Mozart Mozartian lyricism yes. in the whole set of quartets. I agree. It's really that first theme on the violin and the way it's passed then to the viola. It has something really like that Mozartian conversation. Like I have a tune, you have a tune. Yes. Here yeah, the melodies are really beautiful. I mean the opening is really
1: beautiful. as rich Mozartian
0: This movement has a tremendously entertaining finale. Yeah,
1: it's Italian. It's Italian. It, it, strongly Italian.
0: Is it the is it the six-eight time that makes you say that, or it's the rising lines in the two violins, or what makes you find it Italian? It, it has an
1: Italian charm on it. Over it, uh, something it, like Rossini or something. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Before Rossini, he didn't like Rossini so much.
0: No, certainly not. Again very melodic, but suddenly in B flat major. And then of course we come to the Opus 59 number 1 the first of the Razumovsky quartets. I mean this is really a different direction I would say compared with the Opus 18s it's really broad and big and long melodies long lines I mean that opening cello melody. Yes. I mean what can one say about that? I don't think there's a quartet that starts that way. optimism also. The line is always going up. This is something very optimistic about it. Because you know the Waldstein Sonata also that starts with those chords right right. and the rising and also having the violin and viola sort of be like those chords and then having this melody over top. I mean really. recapitulation it, it's kind of overlapping with with your line still finishing and then it's yes. already started. Yeah, exactly. It's really wonderful. Yeah. A bigness to it, a kind of
1: grandness, yes. a real expansiveness. Yeah, and and that's, the, that's what I think is wonderful of the opening of the first movement. Like you have this, you know, the chord of major, which is so simple, almost primitive. I mean, if, if you would think the melody out of the cello, you have like
0: like a nothing's happening. Nothing, nothing. And, and then the second movement is this funny sort of scherzo. It's a beautiful F minor melody that also just stretches and stretches on. I mean, there's there's almost no silence in this movement.
1: It's like the ninth Beethoven. You the slow movement? Yeah. Like the uh, announcement of, of something. Yeah. Angels are coming, something very spiritual.
0: Last movement actually has a Russian theme, right? Yes. And it's really virtuosic also the, the, the duos of the two instruments, the two violins, the violin the cello. Mm-hmm. And this kind of galloping, kind of second motive—the dom pa bom bim pa 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 theres something kind of militaristic about that as well. Yes.
1: And then the syncopes,
0: like it's like just <laughs> Like Miles Davis or something. Yes. <laughs> okay. And then the final piece on this program is the big Opus 131, the c sharp minor quartet, which was, I think it was quite baffling when it was first played to a lot of audiences and musicians, because we talked also about this concert life in Vienna, right? And about people clapping in between movements. Yes. And here comes a piece with seven movements which all flow into one another so there's no applause possible nothing can be repeated and Holtz who was Beethoven's assistant and the second violinist in Schopanzig's quartet and also often playing second violin with Johannes Boom. Uh-huh. he writes to Beethoven but the movements are all connected but when are we supposed to tune we will have to take really good strings to the concert you know <laughs> yes because you're playing for 40 45 minutes yes, exactly. and there's nowhere to stop
1: yeah <laughs> choice for the key c sharp minor c sharp minor is, has such a glow o- o- over it by nature it, it gives such a atmosphere that you cannot you cannot describe it i mean there's only one person that would have written it and it's not possible to try to explain or to grab the atmosphere in words
0: and that opening is a fugue but it's a very very slow one right but but each voice entering there yes in imitation of the other yeah. Starting a quartet with this big adagio I and mean, that's unheard of, I think, in the history of the genre. It's, it's a complete break with the past, I think, on all levels. You have this fugue, right, and then we go into a second movement, which is suddenly in D major, in a new key, which also seems to be a very, very positive, very sudden departure. And then you get suddenly what is like a kind of a recitative from an opera where there's a little kind of violin cadenza then starts this huge variation movement, which is just, it just unfolds in all kinds of unexpected directions. Like if you think of the last movement of the piano sonata opus 111, something similar is taking place. You're having these variations which go into all kinds of unexpected keys and unexpected forms. Sometimes where you don't even recognize where the relationship with the theme is. Maybe the relationship is with the harmony and it's not with the melody anymore, right? Yes. and then suddenly it just goes into this crazy presto just a kind of a wild movement, absolutely wild. There's no other way to describe it. And you have this kind of intersecting, intersecting voices in the fifth movement. And that movement is, is, pretty, is pretty extensive as well. It's very long and very demanding. And this presto just sort of goes on and on and on. And then Beethoven introduces something which had not been really tried before, which is to play sol ponticello in this movement, to play with the bow. Near you the get bridge, that icy effect. That icy effect. I don't think anybody had ever notated that, and so Beethoven did here. It's the very first.
2: <laughs>
0: and this is followed with a kind of song-like, rather sad-seeming adagio, and then you've got the last movement which is again, I don't know, the C sharp minor comes back and it's almost like we have that same kind of horse hooves motive that you get at the end of the 59.3 Razumovsky. <laughs> but this is more like the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse or something like that, right? It's like really, there's something really sort of dark and explosive about this movie. extensive breadth of where it travels. I mean I think this was an absolutely totally avant-garde work at the time it was written and it really looks forward in a lot of ways. It's an absolutely exhausting work to play also. I mean it just demands such a level of concentration.
1: In the in the last movement you have this section where, where he writes almost every bar different tempo like Rolandando and Atempo and Rolandando, did a that one should win Beethoven all the time he he writes down here because here it really has to happen.
0: yeah, how the character will will not come across unless you slam on the brakes there and then move forward all uh, of a sudden, exactly yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast, and that you'll stick around for episode three. Thank you very much, Johan, for being here.
1: It's it's uh, my pleasure, but you know it's a bit hard because you know when you are so deeply involved as a musician, as a player in the bo- string quartets, the, my, I have not enough words to describe them. I, I s- sort of block to to try to describe them because you know I they go through my
0: fingers well thank goodness you're going to play them at least yes exactly all right thanks thank you very much